Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you so much for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you'll also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned at the end of this podcast for more information. My name is Maria Foy, and I'm a pain management pharmacist at Abington Jefferson Health outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Our guests today are Tanya Ritsky, who is a pharmacist and a pain management steward at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and Tracy Hageman, who is at the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy. In this episode, we will be discussing pain management in sickle cell disease. So my understanding is sickle cell disease is a very painful disease, especially when someone's in a sickle cell crisis. So can you tell me some of the general pain management principles for sickle cell disease? Well, there are a number of things that um, Tony and I will discuss back and forth um, during this podcast. I have more of an expertise in pediatric sickle cell disease, which tends to be more in the acute pain management realm, although these children do have some chronic pain. As patients age throughout their disease, uh, some of some of their, well, their pain tends to become more in a chronic base, basis. So there's some layering in there between acute and chronic, but a number of things can tip off a sickle cell crisis. These can include colder weather, exercising, fever, uh, stress, infection. There's a lot of things that can tip off a, a crisis, which would lead them to have an acute need to seek um, medical attention. And in the pediatric realm, that is mostly being admitted to the hospital for some intravenous pain management um, until we get their symptoms under control. Yeah, and I'm just going to chime in here. So thanks, Tracy. Uh, agreed. I think as um, our patients get older, so I primarily work with adult patients um, and teams that take care of adult patients. And so um, the, that chronic pain kind of complicates things. So they've experienced, especially a subset of patients who have more frequent episodes, experience pain on and off regularly and eventually may develop some sensitization and chronic pain syndromes. Chronic pain can happen in a patient with sickle cell disease, just like it can happen in someone who does not have sickle cell disease in the same exact etiologies. So that is a possibility, um, but also complications of their sickle cell disease make that harder, things like avascular necrosis, which is very challenging to treat and very, very painful, um, is a common condition we see in some of our adult patients that we, you know, we have to get orthopedics involved. We have to think outside the box a lot of the times, but it, it can be hard to differentiate between that acute pain uh, crisis type of pain and this uh, chronic pain and when it flares. So, um, the causes as they get older tend to be more of, again, etiologies that like you and I might have, but also complications of the disease um, that, or, and also complications of having, you know, frequent acute pain episodes. Yeah. And those acute pain episodes tend to recur in the same spots over and over and over. So that's, that's a little bit of, of a, a unique challenge with sickle cell disease is once some, um, once a pain site has been established, you tend to get 
these crises occurring back in that, maybe their shoulder, their leg, wherever. And so uh, the patients are usually pretty well informed and can tell you and can help with, with some of that. Um, they are, they are always going to have a baseline pain. Even our children and adolescents are going to have a baseline pain. And so making sure that um, there's an understanding that when you use a pain scale for them, um, you know, they're, they're 10 maybe different, just like in patients without sickle cell disease, but it is important to realize that there is an underlying chronic pain background, static noise when you're looking at acute pain um, crises also. So can you guys tell me what triggers the pain in sickle cell disease? Well, like I said earlier, um, at least in pediatrics, and, and I'll have Tanya uh, chime in for the adult side, but fever, any kind of infection or a fever, our students, who, student athletes, uh, younger students who are athletes, um, exercising in cold weather, um, changes in temperature. So sometimes even going from um, a, a very humid environment to one that's very air conditioned can also tip that off. Um, stress. Um, in females, menstrual cycle um, can sometimes exacerbate or, or kind of be the tipping point to lead into an acute crisis. So, so those kind of things we tend to see pretty regularly. And it's really important here to make sure that the, the patients and the caregivers understand that, that they need to be on alert for those triggers that can cause the pain episodes. I think in adults, it's very similar. Um, a couple of things that come to mind. One is pregnancy. We definitely see pain a lot worse um, when our patients become pregnant and more frequent episodes, harder to control. Uh, and sometimes it lasts, unfortunately, after pregnancy, where now the pain phenotype has changed um, and may be more frequent or harder to control. So that can be a, a trigger. And then also I've heard patients say this hospital is cold and <laughs> that can make it worse or they feel like, you know, they're admitted for one thing, but then it triggers something else. And so I think that that temperature thing is, is definitely an important one to, to keep in mind and like give them extra blankets, <laughs> try and think about ways to keep the room warmer. Um, but otherwise, I think they're pretty similar, you know, types of triggers throughout life. And mm -hmm. we just a lot of times patients will know what those even are. So you can kind of get back to the root of it. So tell me, I know that, you know, opioids are probably a primary treatment for sickle cell disease because the pain is so severe. But is there anything else you can do besides opioids for treatment? Yeah. So multimodal treatment is very important. It's really important for any pain uh, situation. We should be thinking about how we can attack it from different modalities. So it's a best practice in patients with sickle cell disease to have an individualized pain plan. Ideally, that pain plan would be made with the patient when they're not actually experiencing the severe pain episode. So at a time when they're in an outpatient appointment with their, in, in you know, collaboration with their hematologists, with patient input so that it can um, then later hopefully be implemented if and when they do have an episode of pain um, that they need to be admitted for. We also have these pain plans in our um, observation unit where we, you know, like a day hospital setting also so that if patients are coming there, they, they know what they're going to be getting and what's worked and what will hopefully fully work going forward in those pain plans are, of course, opioids, like you mentioned. So um, these are not recipes or like strict guidelines where like you can only give this, you know, it's it's a place to start. It's to help the, work with the patient to figure out what makes sense. Um, and so 
if a patient does have a pain plan with an opioid, and ideally we would have it as a PCA-based plan if they're going to be admitted, so a patient-controlled analgesia plan, uh, it's also considered a best practice. Um, and then we would adjust doses. We'd adjust lockouts, right? We'd work with that pump to find out the right dosing schema that works. I'd argue that veering wildly off the plan should be a consult with the hematologist uh, so that there's a conversation about what's going on. Why is this plan not working this time? You know, so that we are all working together. There is a culture. Uh, a lot of times around opioids that we um, tend to kind of default to bolus only pain plans. Uh, when I say bolus only, I mean IV push. And um, unfortunately, the pharmacokinetics of this aren't ideal, right? Like we're getting a lot of frequent peaks and a lot of frequent troughs, and there's periods, hours at times where there's minimal, if any, analgesic activity. Um, and so we, we kind of create this, This we'll talk more about stigma later, but we perpetuate stigma by having patients kind of say, I need more now, your dose isn't due yet, there's a lot of back and forth. So that's why really PCAs are best practice. The patient can self-titrate. Um, there's no back and forth with, you know, your dose isn't due yet and I can't get there in time. And that can actually really make pain worse, all the stress around fighting for, you know, when is your dose due? So ideally we would have PCA-based plans. And then um, think about all, of course, all of our other medicines. So you asked me about multimodal. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get there yet, but I'm getting there. Um, so, I, you know, there's a lot of other things we can do, like, we should be scheduling um, our non-opioids like acetaminophen and non-steroidals as long as there's no contraindications to those medications. And of course, using them for the shortest indicated duration at the lowest effective dose. Um, we've also been getting some reasonable benefits out of medications like ketamine. So we've been using that more frequently in our patients admitted with vasoocclusive pain and seeing some benefits using that also to taper off of opioids if we need to, you know, once we have their pain controlled. Uh, patients are on other adjuvants at home, things like gabapentin, duloxetine, whatever they may be taking. Uh, we should also be continuing those unless there's a reason to hold them. Um, and we should also be thinking about our non-pharmacologic modalities. So there's, you know, we should be offering all of the things we'd offer anybody who has pain uh, around um, non-farm interventions. And also, you know, anything that the patient reports being helpful to them would be considered appropriate. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of that. And Tracy, if you want to add anything, I welcome your input. Yeah, for, for pediatrics, it's very, very similar. Um, you know, opioids are the mainstay. Um, you know, usually in, in the care planning with the, with the well child checks and, and seeing patients in when they're not in pain, having a really good conversation with the family, with the caregivers, with the child, if they're old enough to understand about the need to not try to tough it out when you are feeling pain, but to treat it as it develops and when to come into the hospital, when to seek treatment, when to be aware, knowing that, and, and we'll talk later about the stigma and everything else, but, but some of the, 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 the buzz around opioids, um, this is a case where we would not want them to be, I guess, reticent to take an opioid when they actually need it. With pediatric patients and adolescents, especially um, the non-farm treatments, um, and we'll talk about some of those those other things too. But uh, a lot of times, distraction is great, but it's not going to control the pain on its own. So again, those opioids are key. You know, and and, and it goes without saying that just like with any type of pain, if if a patient is on a PCA or chronic chronic medications for for pain, making sure that they have a good bowel prep, making sure that we're treating any of the side effects that arise there too, that can also cause, lead to more distress. Well thanks so much for that answer. 
wow, these patients sound particularly challenging. So, you know, I was always under the impression that, you know, sickle cell pain would only be when they're in crisis. And I hear you guys talking about chronic pain in these patients. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and why or how their pain becomes chronic? Well, it's a really good question, and I think it, it's it's one of the one of the maybe not missed, but one of the misperceptions of of pain in sickle cell. Keeping in mind that that the reason that the pain occurs is it's ischemic pain. It's ischemic pain within the vessels. And in pediatrics patients, it starts off in the very small vessels. Um, as those become, you know, injured, the intravascular area gets, gets damaged from the sickling and from the stickiness of the cells, um, from the repeated crises that can occur in those low oxygenated areas. That pain can will continue to happen. So ischemia doesn't just go away and it's never there again. So that ischemic pain is is really what we're looking at with the repeated damage to to the vessels and the organs that can occur with sickle cell with the sickle cell kind of cascade. That's what's going to lead to your chronic pain. Chronic pain can occur in and does occur in kids and of course as the you know the longer the disease goes on the more we're going to see that. What's what's interesting is, you know, preventing those pain crises with some of the newer medications that are out there for disease management. Some of the fetal, fetal hemoglobin products have really helped with maybe preventing some of that long-term damage, but we haven't been doing it for that long to really know as these kids are getting into adulthood. So, it's hopeful that if we have better management of the disease, we're not going to have as much or as severe chronic pain, but we don't really know that yet. And again, every patient is very different in that regard, too. Um, the really big challenge comes in when you have a, a pediatric patient, an adolescent who's been seen by a sickle cell center for their pain management. They have a plan. They get to know the providers really well. Everybody understands that. Um, you know, the, the emergency department where they usually go understands that. There's the plans there. It's waiting for them. And then when they age out of the pediatric and they transition into adult um, care, sometimes that handoff, you get some slips. And so I think that's one thing that that has really been a push in the sickle cell community is to make sure that we are doing a better job with that transitioning from the pediatric to the adult care settings. And, and Tanya can speak a little bit on that, too. Yes, I think all the points you make are really, really good ones. And I think what I really like and and heard you say is those d- disease directed therapies are so important because a lot of times it's like we get so hung up on the pain and focusing on the suffering around the pain and it's like we we'll just make sure that they're still continuing their disease directed therapies so that's part of that transition into adulthood is is reiterating the need to continue what we've been doing and and build on that have that comprehensive uh, care approach for the management of their their sickle cell disease um, because the it does become become a big, bigger challenge for anyone who's transitioning into the adult world just doesn't have, we don't have all the the supports. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think we're improving yeah. on that. And a lot of our programs do have a lot more supports now, but it's, you'll hear patients say just what a big difference this whole experience has been for me. You know, we're not necessarily giving gifts at Christmas right. or like, <laughs> you know, we're not doing the things that, that we, we should do honestly, but we just don't. And so um, it it's a bigger challenge. And then that pain that they're, that they're experiencing may change. Like I said, there's things that happen when you become an adult that don't happen when you're a child, like, you know, having a baby or going to college or other really stressful things that can totally trip more, you know, 
more episodes and then change what the pain looks like. And then that chronic pain state becomes so hard sometimes to figure out. So it's, is it the acute episode? Is it a chronic pain flare? Is it a little bit of both? Um, I think working with patients to really set expectations is so important because maybe when you were a child, your pain goal was zero. Like we could get your pain to go away, but maybe now we can't. Uh, And so what is realistic as far as pain control levels go is part of the conversation that I'm not always sure happens. And so helping the the patients to, to get to where they can understand there may be some level of pain and we have to figure out how much we can help them deal with and live life with and what's a good quality of life. Speaking from an inpatient uh, perspective, which is primarily my my work, I mean, I work with the ambulatory team as well, but the patients I help care for are on the inpatient side, it can be really hard to know when it's a chronic pain flare. Um, and so we're admitting patients and we're treating them with high-dose IV opioids and <laughs> that would definitely not be what you'd recommend for a chronic pain flare, right? So that's kind of the, the hard part is, is determining what's going on. And so we, like for me, it's, it's always trying to figure out, is it pain? Is the pain responding to the opioids or is it not? Um, and that can be a big indicator of, yes, my pain's getting better or we're going up and no, my pain's not getting better. I actually might be getting a little worse. Um, and maybe we shouldn't be continuing on that trajectory. And, and maybe this is more your chronic pain that's not responding than that acute vaso-occlusive episode that we, we maybe started with, but we don't necessarily, we shouldn't be continuing these high-dose opioids at this time. So I think there's a lot of, you know, it's just hard to figure out. And one of the challenges is not having that continuity. So if a patient goes from the pediatric setting to the adult setting and has been having this start to happen, we don't have that continuity. We're starting all over again to figure out, is this chronic? Is this acute? What what have they been doing in the other side of things before they came to us? Um, so that's that's been kind of like the experience, at least in my end. Well, and I think I think one thing to bring up here too is, you know, there's been such big strides made in in disease management for sickle cell. And with some of the disease modifying therapies we have now, these patients are living a lot longer. So we are seeing more adults Mm -hmm. that are in this situation and we're seeing adults with other disease states on top of it as they get, I mean, just, you know, adults without sickle cell are going to develop other things too. Mm -hmm. So it complicates the picture even more. So that's another thing to really keep in mind is, you know, it used to be, we wouldn't see patients much over probably, you know, 40 who had sickle cell. Now we're seeing them much, much longer in life. And that's great, but it also brings another challenge to the clinicians. Absolutely. Great point. So you talked about these kids having, you know, a comprehensive center as they're younger, but now you're talking about they're developing, you know, they have chronic pain, they're developing chronic pain. Is it hard to find people to manage their pain as an adult? Do they do that outpatient or how is that managed? I mean, ideally, right? It is hard as an adult to find people to manage pain, not just for patients with sickle cell disease, right. in just about any condition. Um, so that is a big challenge across the board. And a lot of times the um, hematology clinics or comprehensive programs will try to keep that all in-house so that the patients don't have to go to, you know, specialists for this, specialists for that. But, uh, you know, that is a specialist role. And so it can be really hard. I mean, I, I will help our team uh, come up with plans and think through complex patients. Um, but uh, I'm not seeing those patients in the ambulatory setting and, you know, following them longitudinally. So it is a harder um specialty to kind of get for our patients, but there are like really specialized things we can do. Uh, The other thing that makes it a challenge is that 
sometimes our patients who need that specialty the most are the ones who are in the hospital the most. And so we can't, can barely get them to see our sickle cell team versus, you know, getting them to a pain appointment too. So anything you can do to, you know, wrap around the services to have them be all at the same time, if you can get that patient to an ambulatory appointment is huge. Um, But that can be really, really hard. And so even though we said sometimes, you know, ideally we'd create a pain plan with the patient in the outpatient setting, sometimes we don't have that type of (laughs) that luxury. Um, And so we do have to work with the patients when we have them to figure out what makes sense to help manage their pain and what's driving their pain and what things we can do. And a lot of times there's more than, you know, there's other things that are making it harder to cope with their pain that we may be able to help them address, you know, special needs, things like social needs, other things that they maybe, you know, we could help out with. So I think that that not just thinking about like, is this just pain? Is this just opioids? But like, what else is going on in in person's life? And a lot of times in the hospital, there's a lot going on. So we can start to make those inroads a little bit. Um, But that key piece of transitioning to the ambulatory setting is missing. And that really is an important piece of the puzzle that is can be very hard for that small subset of individuals. Thanks for that. Um, So I'm thinking, you know, a lot of times these patients, you know, nobody don't really like practitioners don't have a great understanding of sickle cell disease. And here we have these kids coming in and adults coming in asking for high doses of opioids. So with the opioid crisis, there's so much stigma around opioid use in general. So do you see stigma against sickle cell patients? Yes. Um, The short answer is yes. Um, I think, you know, as, as, as these patients are living with their disease longer, we're seeing perhaps some more targeted education towards healthcare providers, which is a great thing to see. But yeah, there's definitely stigma. There's stigma from healthcare providers. There's stigma from family members. There's stigma from um, society. You know, I, I know, you know, as, as, a, as an inpatient pediatric uh, practitioner, you know, I'd even have nurses going, well, they, they said they're hurting, but they're not really hurting because they're playing video games. Well, no, they're probably hurting. They're using video games as a distraction. So there, there still is a long way to go. But yeah, the opioid, um, the opioid stigma, it, it's attached to all kind of pain. But these patients especially probably, you know, keep in mind that, that um, majority of patients with sickle cell in our country are of African-American descent. And um, some of those socioeconomic things can really play a part in that too. And it just perpetuates everything, which is a really horrible thing to have happen. Um, you know, the, the, the thought of, oh, these patients are just drug seeking and, you know, they can't really be hurting. I try to remind providers and, and, and others that, you know, unless you're actually in that person's shoes, you can't, definitively say that. There was a movie back years ago called Powder about a, like a, a, a guy who could like touch people and, and feel exactly what they were feeling. And I always remind people, unless you're that person, you can't say whether somebody is, is you know, faking it or not. Um, and, I, and I try to say that. Um, it is frustrating, I think, especially as, as, as adolescents kind of start getting they don't want to be on medications. They don't want to take those things. And so some of them don't want to let other people know that they need to take chronic medications. It's hard enough being a teenager without having a chronic illness. So there's, there's stigma there. There is with the, the opening up and we'll talk a little bit more about this of, of, you know, cannabis laws, things, there's, there's also some, some issues there. Um, And so these, you have to keep in mind that 
these patients have lived with this pain for a long time and they have ways that they cope with their pain and we shouldn't we shouldn't judge them for how they cope with their pain um, but we should do the best we can to try to ma- help them manage their pain as best as we can does uncontrolled pain ever contribute to stigma Absolutely. So I think this kind of dovetails real nicely. Um, So just like Tracy said, the need for opioids itself contributes to stigma. A lot of times the patients have been around, they know what doses work, they may be asking for specific doses, um, having had them before, that frequent need to continue to ask for additional doses. (laughs) All of this drives the stigma um, around pain, opioids, uncontrolled pain, and sickle cell disease. And I think also, kind of to Tracy's point, pain is so subjective, right? So a huge element of treating pain is trust. And we have to trust each other, which can be really hard to do. And then layer in the fact about, you know, that this in general, patients with sickle cell disease have not been given adequate access to treatment for pain, have had to fight for their treatments for pain. Um, We know that pain is commonly undertreated in our black and brown patients and our you know diversity equity all this stuff is just not the same and so that just makes it that much worse um and so we do find that of course we can have additional stigma layered into this whole um uh picture and there's studies done on it right so we know we're not just like making it up so um i think what ends up also happening that adds to it is we're giving these high doses, we're giving them frequently, and sometimes we can actually make pain worse. Um, we can cause things like opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and then it's really hard to figure out, like, is this patient asking for more opioids? Is it making them better? Is it not making them better? Like, what is actually going on here? Um, and so the natural inclination when we give a dose that doesn't work is to go up, right? Like, give more. But maybe that's not always the right answer. So um, I think what we we sometimes don't do is we don't necessarily have achievable pain goals. Like what are we trying to get out of, of this analgesic regimen? So if the patient actually feels better, what does that look like beyond a number? Um, what, what is happening so that we can help steer that conversation? And if the opioids are not helping and possibly hurting and causing a hyperalgesic state, that we can have that conversation with the patient and figure out the next step. Because the next step would be like as a best practice to lower the dose, right? Not go up on it or to switch to a different opioid at at a lower dose or to use something like ketamine or methadone. So there's things we can do. It wouldn't be that we wouldn't treat their hyperalgesic state. It would just kind of be a pivot in how we're approaching, how we're treating the pain. Um, So that, you know, thinking through kind of the whole picture there. And then you might also, if you have uncontrolled pain, run into a situation where patients may start reaching for other substances, which adds to stigma. Um, So it doesn't really help. So it's, you know, and we all know that marijuana or medicinal marijuana is legal in many, most, almost all states now. I know it's legal as a medicinal indication here in Pennsylvania. Um, And so I know it's not the case necessarily in all states, but in most states, there's some indication where someone may qualify, even though they have sickle cell disease, chronic pain, anxiety, something else. So uh, patients are likely using marijuana, many legally with a card or in some capacity. Um, And so we need to recognize also that that's the modality that people may be using. Um, I think in this day and age, probably from my perspective, the most important thing is to counsel them on safe places to acquire it. um, Because we know that drugs are getting laced with things like fentanyl and it can be very dangerous. And so if we can 
just talk about the safety around using if we know that people are going to be using marijuana to help treat their pain, um, then that would be, uh, to me, the most, probably most important thing. And um, I guess along those lines, finally, just kind of put a plug in here for opioid stewardship, being an opioid stewardship coordinator, good prescribing practices is, is totally key. Um, you know, anyone prescribed an opioid should be educated about their risks, should be ed educated about their possible, ben possible benefits, and should also be prescribed naloxone to have in the home. It's, you know, the medication is risky. It's nothing about the individual. And so we should just be doing that as best practices. Um, other things we think about commonly are things like urine drug screens, right? Whether there's a lot of controversy, whether or not those are very helpful, but it, at best, if you're going to do them, you should do them kind of universally rather than saying, now I'm worried about you. I'm going to punitively charge you with, you know, urine drug screen. It should be used as a tool, just as anything else to kind of inform your prescribing and inform safe use, but not in a punitive manner if you're going to use them. Um, there are some guidelines. The ASH guidelines do provide a framework for prescribing chronic opioids in patients with sickle cell disease. And that does really include thinking about opioids as an actual last line option or when other things have not worked uh, for this patient population, it does not mean you should not prescribe them. It just means we should be treating chronic pain the way we would treat chronic pain in general. Um, so I hope that kind of helps. I know it was like a lot of, uh, I kind of took it off on a tangent, but all of that will help reduce stigma if we kind of blanket you know, approach it from a safety perspective rather than singling out patients with sickle cell disease as needing just these things or patients with some other disease status. You know, everybody should be entitled to safe opioid prescribing in use. And I would also add to that, um, you know, in the adolescent and 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 even tween um, stages uh, of life, um, you know, even if even if marijuana medical marijuana is approved in the state, it's not necessarily approved for all ages. And so your adolescents and your children might be a little bit more reticent to admit that that's what they're using to cope. So having that trusting relationship with the patient and their their caregivers and their families that goes a long way to to, you know, reducing that stigma, taking care of some of those myths, because I'm not going to fault anybody for, for using other substances if their pain is not controlled, but we need to know what they're using so that we can help make that better. And so that, that's really a key component. And I try to, I try to, I try to say it that way when I, when I talk to patients too, it's, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I need to know this so that I can do the best thing I can to make sure that your pain is controlled. Um, it, it also brings up the issue of if they are inpatient and they are a chronic user of, let's say, marijuana, they can't use that in the hospital. And so that is an even more important thing for acute pain um, when acute pain crisis or acute health crisis occurs and they are hospitalized we really need to know so that we can take that into consideration when we're designing their pain treatment plan for that visit. Great. So this sounds so uh, complicated and there's a lot involved and a lot of stigma. So what can we do as pharmacists? How can we help these patients? I think we need conversations. <laughs> I think we need, we need education of caregivers. We need education of, of patient groups you know, I think, you know, these, these patients usually know what they know exactly what they're feeling and they know what their history is. And they are, they, they really have to be their own best advocates, but that doesn't mean that we should be adversarial against them. We need to work with them. So I think education is, it is desperately needed, more widespread education, um, not just 
we expect that in the sickle cell centers or in hematology practices, but not all these patients have access or are going to go there for their for their immediate care. It would be great if that, that occurred, but that doesn't always happen. So making sure that um, we set reasonable goals and achievable goals for our patients, making sure that we stress that their quality of life is really what we're really trying to get them to. Can they still go to school? Can they still go to work? Can they can they still do fun things that they want to do in to keep their quality of life up? And that's really what our goals are. So um, I think it really comes down to education, 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 um, getting the word out. And then hopefully that starts pulling back on some of these myths and stigmas that we're going to see also with this patient population. Agreed. Yeah. And I think something that's very, um, that has hit home, we've been working a lot on this, uh, these efforts where I work at Penn and in trying to, you know, help patients live better lives, basically. Uh, it's, it's really, there's a lot of people that touch patients throughout the whole health system. And unfortunately we do not, at my individual entity, we do not have a dedicated service that they're always admitted to. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of passing around and the patients get kind of shuffled around and get a different experience each time they come, which is not the goal. So we're working really hard to standardize our approaches across our health system and not necessarily our dosing or how what we do specifically, but just our general approaches and, and making sure we're following best practices. Um, and in that work, there's it was so interesting. It's been we've been working a lot with the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion to make sure we're thinking about this really holistically. Um, and I think the best way, the, like the, one of the biggest take home messages I've gotten from it, is to always think about whatever we're doing that we could, if it was a patient with sickle cell disease, that say we're going to use a PCA for acute pain management when patients come in with severe pain in the patients who have sickle cell disease, that you could take the sickle cell disease out of it and you would say, I would use the PCA for acute pain management in a patient who comes in with an oncology disease flare or with any other disease flare. That would be the approach I'd take. And yes, it would. And so I'm not saying this is a special approach just for these individuals, but this is an approach that I would do in general with, in a patient population that has similar type of, of um, you know, pain, severe pain episode. So it's, uh, never similar, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so anyways, I think that that for me is so important is that we're thinking about this really and that we are doing things to improve and standardize care so that everyone has access. We're improving access. We're making it more standardized and we're not, uh, hopefully not doing any more harm. And through that work, including patients always in the work we're doing. So having patients review what we're, what we're putting together, thinking about our best practices with the patients so that we're not just, and it's not all the patients, but select, you know, identifying people who can help us give input uh, on behalf of the entire group um, and then iteratively readdressing whether or not our best practices are still best practices and if we need to make changes. So um, I think that that is a huge way we can reduce stigma because we are helping educate through the work we're doing and we're helping remind people that it's not about the disease, but it's about treating the person kind of more globally. Um, so that has been, I think, one of my biggest take-home points and how we can help is by thinking about it not in isolation. Well, thank you so much, guys. And that's all the time that we have today. So I want to thank Tanya and Tracy for a great topic and discussion. And for our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. And finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check the member-exclusive offerings. 
on the ASAP website, including resources, centers for ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and many more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as ASAP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider and really hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.